This is Bob Rourke with Business Leaders Podcast, and today we're incredibly fortunate to have Dr. Dave Carley on the show. He's the CEO of Greylidge, and Greylidge is located out of Vail, Colorado, and Denver. Dave is responsible for all aspects of the company development, including the integration of a strong team of professionals to support Greyledge's innovative approach to regenerative medicine. A bit of background about Dave. After attending med school at the University of Maryland, Dr. Carley, Dave, completed his residency at physical medicine and rehabilitation at Harvard Medical School. Subsequently, he joined the facility at Harvard, serving as an attending physician with the Department of PM&R at Spalding Rehabilitation Hospital, as well as working in the Department of Orthopedic Surgery at Mass General Hospital. After joining the Stedman Clinic in Vail, Colorado in 2003, Dr. Carley began to adopt the use of autologous-based therapies that were emerging in the field of regenerative medicine. He has continued to lead the effort required to refine the practice of regenerative medicine, has published pivotal clinical results, and lectured extensively. His practice has grown substantially and includes treating elite-level and professional athletes. As a result, Dr. Carley has been featured in publications such as the Wall Street Journal, New York Times, ESPN Magazine, and the Denver Magazine. Dr. Carley recognized early on that understanding the composition of regenerative biologic preparations used in treating his patients would be critical to refining his practice of medicine. He also realized that a one-size-fits-all approach to creating the therapeutic preparations wouldn't meet the need for an evidence-based precision medicine approach. In support of his concept for regenerative medicine, he completed the COLA Laboratory Director Training Course and obtained his MBA at Daniels College of Business, University of Denver. Greyledge has achieved sustained profitability and is ready for scalable expansion. Dr. Carley is positioning the company to maintain its unique technology platform, offering by tracking regulatory activity, advancing biologic sample analytics and quality measures, and creating protocols that allow for customization of patient biologic preparations. Dave, that was a mouthful. Yeah, it only took seven years to do it, Bob. <laughs> well, <laughs> welcome to the show. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's an honor to be here. I, I tell you what, we're going to drill down a little bit. And so folks get a handle on what is Greyledge Technology? So Greyledge is a early phase biotech company that uh, works with a patient's own tissue samples. So you, I mean, you, you mentioned the word autologous earlier. A lot of people don't, may not know what that word means. Autologous means from the self. So it's your tissues that are put back into you. So we'll take a tissue from you, typically blood or, or uh, bone marrow tissue, and we manipulate that into a sample uh, and a therapeutic that's uh, placed back either uh, by injection or as a part of a surgical technique where our surgeon implants it. I hesitate to use the word stem cell. There are stem cells in these preparations. That's not a very accurate term to be using anymore. Uh, it's a bit antiquated. But there are therapeutic cells uh, within these preparations that we can use to promote and support natural healing. So our company promotes healing, really, at the end of the day. Uh, we apply it towards orthopedic applications, arthritis, sports injuries, things of that nature. There are other applications that we're not actively, actively involved with, but are active areas of research like cardiovascular medicine and wound healing, and cosmetic uh, uh, applications and others. So we've stayed in our wheelhouse in orthopedics, uh, which is, is my background in musculoskeletal medicine, but, um, but it's an interesting tech play. It's uh, something that continues to evolve uh, in part due to advancements in science and in part due to public demand. 
this was something that uh, that patients wanted. They didn't want to go through big, dangerous procedures. They want the medical and scientific community to come up with alternatives for them. And this is one of many, many, many companies uh, that's working towards that end. You know, it's, we, we talked sort of about, you know, what you're doing, what Grayledge does. So it, specifically, you know, for Grayledge, that's the underlying science side. But what does Grayledge bring to the table? What do they do? So we set up um, a laboratory processing um, facility within a hospital or a practice or um, uh, an academic institution, for example, where we produce the sample that is implanted. So we coordinate with the providers uh, to obtain a sample, process it, analyze it, and we'll get into the quality control component of our organization, which is the unique piece, and then re-implant it uh, via the provider. Grayledge cannot practice medicine. We're not a medical provider, okay? We're a, we're a service provider. So it's a collaborative effort with the clinician, okay? In my own practice, that clinician is me. With our partners, it's, it's the docs that we work, work with. So Grayledge can't tell the doc what to do with our product. Uh, the field and, and research and, and, and uh, clinical judgment determines what to do with the product. We produce the product at a, uh, in a unique way at a very, very high level. That also sets up the platform from which we can track it uh, in research uh, methodology that is, I believe, superior to what, the field, what has developed the field or led the field to date. So uh, we, we're a collaborative service provider, really. And we're also, at the end of the day, becoming more of a, of a data management uh, a company as well because it's our uh, responsibility to validate that our products work, just like any company. In this case, it's a biotech and, and medical apps company. Uh, so we have to create a platform from which we can track our outcomes with our, our uh, associates or with our network. So it, it's, it's multiple arms, I suppose, of the company, and, and that's been a, uh, an evolution, I believe, over time. Um, the field's growing so quickly, uh, it's been hard to keep up with it scientifically. Um, and the public demand has created a, a bit of a, a pull instead of a push. Uh, and that's led to a faster development uh, probably than, than we would have liked in terms of, uh, uh, of applications and where this is being used across the country. And Grayledge almost in a way maybe slowed that down a little by saying, whoa, hey, let's put on the brakes here for a sec, guys. Let's do this right. Let's figure out how to do it ethically, legally, correctly. And also create a platform with science that works. At the end of the day, if our uh, products aren't effective, uh, then we're not doing our job. So it was, it was a complicated time uh, to develop the company, but a, a really important one, I believe, because we were just seeing development that I didn't like the direction that it was going, and this was our solution. You know, we, we were talking before, and, and there's a lot of people in this arena what makes Grayledge different? What's their, for lack of a better term, value proposition? Yeah, what's our MO? It, you know, the field was driven and it matured with very little quality control. So, for example, uh, medical devices uh, really were responsible for driving utilization in the early days, <clears throat> excuse me, of the field. And in that situation, you would input a sample, the device would process it, uh, a final product would come out the other end, and you had no idea what was in it. There was no measurement, there were no analytics, there was no quality control whatsoever. And I started out using these devices a number of years ago, just like everyone else. 
And even with no quality control, we were still seeing trends towards some reasonable and healthy outcomes. And you were still within the, the range of what was legal or ethical to do. Well, at the time, it was the best we had. Mm-hmm. So utilizing that, I just didn't feel it was acceptable as a practitioner. Um, so the, the concepts of Greyledge came from feeling that that was inadequate. We had to do better. We had technology that could allow us to do better. So Greyledge's value proposition is that we provide the quality control and analytics. We have a quality management program that is set up based on something called CLIA. CLIA is a a federal uh, body that oversees hospital laboratories. When we started this, there was no playbook. There was no one to oversee us. There was no one to regulate us. We had to go to what we felt was the closest model and we are a lab, so we went to the gold standard, which was CLIA. So we set up our operating procedures in a quality program based on a CLIA standard, again, the, the organization that would come in and audit your hospital lab. Then we invited CLIA to come in and take a look at our stuff, and they did. They showed up, and they were great, and they went through and provided some useful feedback, and at the end of that first audit of many audits, uh, they said, well, Dave, you, you uh, would meet our criteria, but technically you don't fall under our jurisdiction. It gave us our foundation. That mm-hmm. was important, right? So we, we looked at, at good manufacturing practices and good laboratory practices and different quality control measures. And then, of course, we looked at, at the FDA. When we organized Greyledge, we said we wanted to create an analytical platform that would allow us ultimately to look at dose-response relationships. So with You the, know, with, for folks that are listening that don't know what a dose-response relationship is. Can you dig into that just a little? Well, to go back to my earlier analogy, so you, you have a device which puts out a product, you don't know what's in it. How do you determine if it worked? Because 10 different patients will produce 10 totally different samples. So if we could at least know what was in it, we can look at the components of the biologic, and we can break down the different cells and cell populations and the number of platelets and different uh, analytical measurements. And then we can run that in parallel with outcomes. How does the patient do? And then you can say, well, this group of patients did well. What was it about their biologic that we might identify as a trend that would alert us or trigger us to make it better? Mm -hmm. This group didn't do so well. Is there something as a common thread that we could find in that group that would trigger us maybe to identify a patient that may not do so well, or we have to alter their protocol, or we have to process it differently, or do something different? So it was dose, in this case, measuring the numbers of cells and cell populations. That's our dose, if you will, and response. How did the patient do? And that's your data collection effort. Well, that's the platform that's set up now to improve the quality and, and statistical relevance of the research, mm-hmm. right? If you do, So here's the analogy I use. If you have a blood pressure problem and you have five different blood pressure medicines and you give that to a bunch of patients, but you don't know which dose you gave, how do you prove what's an effective dose. Mm -hmm. And that's the situation we were in when this whole field really started, probably around 04, 05. Again, didn't feel it was acceptable. So we wanted to create a platform to address that particular problem. Let's at least know what's in it, if for no other reason than to provide safety measures to Mm -hmm. our patients. We also knew that the FDA would view this not in the same way it would view a drug, because we can get into later the difference between uh, what we do and, and drug development. But, uh, but we knew if we followed or tracked that standard in the language that they knew, 
they were less likely to um, uh, be concerned about what we were doing. And we designed the company from day one uh, to meet the FDA's expectations based on our interpretation of what they wanted. Um, so we went out and found Clio. We went out and found elements of good manufacturing practices. We went out and found elements of good laboratory practices. And we kind of melded it into this standard operating platform and quality management platform that satisfied elements of each. And then uh, we invited the FDA to come and have a look by registering. You know, I, I'm, I'm thinking as you're talking about the approach that we're going to go through and we're going to create standards based on acceptable CLIA and going to FDA. And for many entrepreneurs, I don't think that's the approach necessarily that they're, they're trying to get to market and you're trying to get to market correctly, quickly or correctly anyways through standards. What do you think contributed to that thought process? Well, I, I think any startup is vulnerable, especially early on, uh, but through the business cycle uh, until they achieve a, a critical mass. If there was a problem, we wanted to know early because we still had an opportunity to change it. And as a general rule in the biotech or pharma industry, um, it's very specific rules you got to follow. Ours was hazy. It wasn't completely clear because this was such a new area the FDA literally didn't have time to get uh, guidances prepared for exactly what we were doing. And then it exploded, and it was just a situation where it couldn't keep up. So we had to do the best we could to meet a standard. We wanted to, to set the bar as an industry leader in terms of quality, but we had no playbook. So we had to make it up. Uh, so we cherry-picked elements from what we felt were, were ideal to, to create that platform. Um, we took a different approach. You know, it, we didn't want to guess and have the FDA show up and be wrong and then have to reverse engineer all kinds mm -hmm. of different things. That would have been a cumbersome and, and challenging path. I guess we had to guess on some respects on what we thought they would want to see based on the Code of Federal Regulations and our interpretation and consultants and all these kinds of things that we did for background. But we wanted them to come so that we could uh, pivot or adapt or morph the company in a direction that was harmonious with with the FDA. And I think the industry has seen a lot of the equivalent of a cease and desist letter from the FDA mm -hmm. coming to companies or practices because they guessed wrong or they pushed the boundaries of, of what the Code of Federal Regulations allows. We didn't want that. Grayledge was designed to provide a quality product for its users. And in addition, we wanted to protect them from they don't have the time to dig into FDA protocols and code of federal regulations and all the stuff that we had to do. We wanted to do that for them. We wanted this to be a, a turnkey model that allowed them to focus on practicing medicine, which is what they do best, and trust us to make sure that they're in compliance with what uh, the FDA expected and what the state, uh, at the state level, what their expectations were as well, and then have the confidence that our product was the very best it could be uh, that they trusted it enough to put it into their patients. You know, it, it, I thought that was really important to dig into because we talked about that at length before. You know, for, for an average um, practice or potential client, they're looking at a, at a range of expenditure. What could they look at as a range of expenditure to adopt your technology? Yeah, so, so the, the field developed without a, a billing channel. Um, as with any new medical technology, um, a fair amount of research has to be done before a third-party payer will adopt a coding channel to be able to bill an insurance company. So it was a fee-for-service model. So that in and of itself creates a number of challenges and potential for misuse and, and all kinds of problems. 
So our challenge was to create a cost-effective platform and dump in as much value uh, for the reasons we just talked about as we could. In terms of cost, the provider sets the cost to the patient. It's a fee-for-service model, mm -hmm. right? Which you know, some people like and some people don't. I personally like the model, and this is why. If I treat a patient and they spend their hard-earned money on a technique, their treatment that I've recommended and performed on them, and they don't do well, you know who's accountable? Me. I'm accountable. I'm going to hear about it. <laughs> yes. Right? I'm going to hear about it. So on one, one level, from a quality perspective, it forces us to be on our game. It forces us to be uh, doing the best we can and, and providing good. And also educating them correctly on the decision on whether or not to do the treatment you know, in the first place. Because if you push the boundaries knowing that your outcome isn't likely, you're going to have lousy outcomes. So you know, I think in that respect... Uh, it's a good thing, but it also creates the potential for misuse. You know, we talk about the business of medicine and the doctor-patient relationship and the unique challenges we face in commercializing something that's a medical treatment. It's, it's difficult. It is a unique relationship between the doctor and the patient. Uh, there is potential to uh, uh, to do it incorrectly. So we we said, Gray Ledge doesn't practice medicine, but my personal, as a as a clinician, my personal approach was, Let's educate the patient as though they were a consumer, mm -hmm. right? Because they're investing in this now. We're not going through a third party. So we tell them what we know from research. We tell them what we know anecdotally. We tell them the risks. We tell them um, you know, the likelihood or potential for success. Go through everything in, in, in uh, context. And then, as we talked about earlier, every single patient hears from me, it is possible this will not work. It's possible. We're not perfect. And we say, well, you know, 80% of patients do well or this or that or the other thing based on what we know. But that's not 100. Yeah, that's good if you're not in the 20%. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. But they need to hear that and they mm -hmm. need to know that because they're trying to make a, a, a consumer decision now. It's a little different from, hey, let's just run this through the insurance company and, and uh, you know, if it doesn't work, we tried it and, you know, we'll try something else. It's different now. This is an educated investment and uh, we are ethically bound to be fair. And that gets into your original question of price point, right? The physician dictates the price point to the patient. Uh, Greyledge's costs are fixed, right? For us to produce a biologic, uh, depending on, on what we do, it can vary from several hundred dollars to a little over $1,000. So relatively inexpensive compared to a, a surgical implant, which can be $50,000, dollars $70,000 or something like that. Just an example. So it's relatively cost effective, and we do that for a reason because we knew those costs were going to be transferred right to the patient. So we wanted to create a model that was profitable. We have to make money. We're a business, right? We can't, if we don't make money, we're not going to be around very long. But also was fair to the marketplace that we were serving, which is at the end of the day is the patient, even though we can't practice medicine. So we had to consider the end consumer, even though that's not our client. Our client is the physician. Mm -hmm. then the end, the end result, the consumer, is the patient. So we have an intermediary to deal with there. We can control our part. We can't control the doctor's part. But it was in a unique position to be able, as a peer, a, a physician, to counsel them as a peer. I can't counsel them, you know, as, as a, an executive for Greyledge Technologies. Again, we can't practice medicine, so we're limited in that regard. So it was a very unique position to be in, and, and we wanted to provide a good product uh, that again, was an industry standard. And part of that industry standard was ethically uh, providing the service in a fair way 
for the physician that's listening, and he's, you know, that this sounds interesting, what does adoption of this particular technology look like to them, time frame or, or yeah. space use or, or bring it into their practice? Yeah, so, so we're a little different. So a majority of the models for producing this type of product, um, uh, and the products we should mention, I guess, uh, there's two primary products that we use. One is called PRP, or platelet-rich plasma. So it involves us taking a blood sample and concentrating some of the cells from the blood and, and, and the platelets from the blood into an implantable product that then is used, again, either by injection or by surgical implantation. The second is, is a bone marrow concentrate. So we take blood from the bone marrow cavity, and in that uh, sample are what we call um, multipotent cells or, or, or cells that have the ability to promote healing. Mm -hmm. So the platelets release growth factors that promotes and stimulates healing, and the cells in a bone marrow concentrate, for example, also stimulates healing. And I don't want to get too far into the science, but the model of scientific thought changed while we were developing Greyledge. And if you think about the, the, the standard stem cell model, how do stem cells work, right? The thought was stem cells are placed, they attach to whatever it is you want them to attach to, and then they become that tissue. So in an arthritis model, for example, we inject them into a knee, they attach to the cartilage, and they become cartilage. That was the thought for years as to how these cells worked. Well, that has changed entirely. What we're learning, and, and this is an evolving process, is that those cells now act as, um, as a, a, a cell manager, as a tissue manager. Some of them actually attach and differentiate or become the tissue that they want to become. But most of them release proteins that tell the other cells what to do. And that's actually the mechanism that appears to be uh, gaining uh, strength scientifically in terms of how these things work. So um, one of my colleagues, uh, Arnold Kaplan, coined the phrase uh, medicinal signaling cells, right? So these are active cells. They're, rec they're sensing their environment, right? What's going on here? And they're releasing signals to tell the other cells how to behave. Well, why doesn't that happen normally? Because there aren't high uh, levels of these uh, cells or platelets in the area. In orthopedics, for example, we deal with tissues that don't have a blood supply. If you don't have a blood supply, these things can't ever get to the area that needs them. So we put them there. And we put them there in doses, right, in concentrations that can have a positive effect. So that's really a premise behind how all this works. And, it, and there's no rejection because it comes from the patient. Because it's your own. So that, that um, uh, created a natural safety profile that we liked, okay, that was attractive. Um, and also for, from an FDA perspective allowed us to uh, move our development forward a little bit more quickly without having to go through the typical pathways that a drug, for example, would go through, which is preclinical animal testing and then several phases of testing. That can take years and millions or hundreds of millions of dollars to do. The Code of Federal Regulations said because it's your own and we follow a couple of simple rules, we're, we're allowed, it's not FDA approved, we're allowed to use these based on the practice of medicine, so the clinician's discretion. So again, Greyledge can provide it and the clinician decides what to do with it. There were two critical uh, features that we had to meet to satisfy the FDA. The first is something called minimal manipulation. We couldn't do a lot to them. There's, there's uh, limits to what we can do to them when they're outside of the body. We can concentrate them and then we have to immediately put them back in. The second was something called homologous use, and that's a really fancy word. 
but it basically means you're taking something from the body and putting it back into the body in a in a, a situation that it would normally find itself. Well, there's pretty much blood in almost every part of our body. So mm-hmm. taking blood from one area of the body, a vein or the bone marrow, and putting it back into another part of the body met homologous use. For example, you can't take a neuron from a brain and put it into an E. Or you can't take a liver cell and put it into the brain. That would be non-homologous use. So we had to meet those criterion. And that allowed the safety profile to be fairly strong. Uh, There's still very little adverse events that are reported in the literature or anecdotally to my knowledge. So the safety profile has been good. Now our task is to um, improve uh, the composition, if you will, the dose, if you will, for a particular patient and a particular indication. So the way we would process a sample for a 75-year-old smoker is different than we would a 23-year-old professional athlete or the way we would uh, process uh, with someone with diabetes is different from someone who doesn't have diabetes. The way we would uh, process a sample for a bone is different from a tendon, is different from a ligament, and is different from a muscle. The way we would process for acute problem is different from a chronic problem. And the only way we could determine or at least move towards that model of precision medicine, right, was to create a platform where we could study the trends that would allow us to make alterations. And that gets back to the original premise we talked about earlier. The first step was measure, then validate your measurement. What you measured was accurate. So measure, validate, okay, and then adapt as we study, right? Measure, validate, adapt. So the feedback from the patient's critical to know what you're doing. And and the provider has to make the commitment to actually track the outcomes. And we're just getting to that point where, we're developing those practice, uh, the uh, platform to allow our providers to be able to do that effectively. I must admit that came a lot slower than I had hoped. I would hope we would have a large database all, already in play, but it took a long time to actually develop a platform that was user-friendly enough that doctors would adopt it in their busy lives and busy practices. You know, I, I think about all of this stuff, but before we go too far, some of the folks are going, well, that's really interesting. How do I find you? So how do they find you on social media? Yeah, um, you know, social media has become a, a, a job in and of itself, I think, these days. And some of my colleagues uh, do it better uh, than <laughs> others. Uh, so so we, we outsource help uh, there. And uh, it's an important thing that, that I have to do personally. I've been to LinkedIn, uh, active on LinkedIn. And we're only now getting to the point where we're just, See, we didn't market this very much, Bob. We, we didn't want to market this until we felt we had it right. Um, we're only now getting to the point where we're marketing, scaling this thing aggressively. We've only been doing it about a year. This was um, piloted for almost six years before we scaled it out and started to look uh, to develop our network. Um, so LinkedIn is an easy way to find me. It's just my name on LinkedIn. Um, and that's spelled with a K. Yeah, David Carley, K-A-R-L-I. Yeah, you can just track me down on LinkedIn or just Google search Grayledge Technologies and it'll get you to me. Um, that's the best way. We're looking at some other channels. And um, the thing we have to be careful of with Grayledge, um, because we're a regulated uh, industry, is, is the language that we use on the web uh, has to be very carefully planned. The way we market, the way we uh, promote our organization uh, is under guidance. So we're a little limited in what we can say. Um, I'm investigating as a clinician, as a provider, some other ways that we might be able to help promote our message uh, that 
that obviously is is meets the FDA's expectations. But um, again, that's using my unique leverage as both a clinician and as an executive with this organization to try to uh, help develop the field responsibly and move it forward responsibly and ethically. You know, in you know, circling back, we're going to kind of go back a little ways and and look at um, the history of genesis of uh, Greyledge. You know, and and for you, you had your career going through college and athletics and med school and and went uh, to the faculty at Harvard. And so you practiced there for a period of time. And then there was a period of time where you transitioned from the East Coast, in which you know, many might consider a fairly good spot at Harvard Medical School. Mm-hmm. And you came to Stedman Clinic in Vail, Colorado. Yeah. What was the thought process when you left there and came you know, Bobby just wasn't thinking. <laughs> I was just kidding. It was completely just unplanned. Only, just left. Only kidding. Only kidding. No, uh, you know, I was on a I was on a, a career development path at Harvard, and uh, I had a good relationship with my chairman, who really wanted me to come along in the system, and uh, and that's a that's a fine career. Um, you know, I was put in touch with a provider in Vail. Um, I'd never been to Vail. Never been to Colorado, and I just was curious. And the, the the clinic had a had a very strong reputation in, in the orthopedic community. So you know, obviously, as a young guy, I think I was twenty nine years old, and uh, came out, and yeah, it's an incredibly beautiful place. What time of year did you come out? It was it was not winter, but I think it was fall. If I wasn't mud correctly. season, it wasn't no, it wasn't mud season. <laughs> uh, you know, and uh, so I, I came out, and uh, I, I must admit, I wasn't much of a skier or you know any, anything like that. But um, Doctor Stedman. Uh, who has since retired, but uh, who was still very much uh, the founder and an, and an active uh, force in the clinic and leader of the clinic at that point, was a, was a tremendous person and a, a tremendous clinician. And he, uh, he had created something that was so unique. I, I, I had no concepts of Greyledge Technologies when I came out here. I was, I was just a doc, right? I was a kid. And um, it was an impressive place. They had set up a, an impressive clinical and research platform. And uh, it was just a great opportunity and a challenge for a young guy um, uh, to take on. And, and uh, you know, I think my, I think the, my chairman wasn't too happy about my decision and, and I respect that. But uh, it, you know, in, in hindsight, it, it has allowed me to engage um, in things that in an academic track would have been much, much more difficult to do. Um, because you have obligations uh, in that uh, academic center uh, that take up a lot of your time and take up a lot of your energy. And, and this entrepreneurial bug uh, would have been more difficult to satisfy uh, in that environment. And that's not to, to take anything away from tremendous uh, resources and, and things that academics. In fact, we're looking at academic institutions and clinical partnerships right now, which is incredibly exciting to be able to work with some of the best minds in research and, and some incredibly dedicated people that take on that life in mm-hmm. academia, which I, I respect tremendously. Um, a little constraining for me, I must admit, but, uh, but kudos to them. They're, they're terrific people. So, you know, you're at Stedman and figuring out how to operate in a big practice. Mm-hmm. Somewhere along the line, the notion of the entrepreneurial bug arrived. What do you yeah. think was, this, was the trigger or the genesis of that? Well, I didn't know it existed. Quite honestly, Bobby, it was uh, it was a bit of an evolution. But 
the the genesis of of just getting interested in regenerative medicine um, was so I you know my career has kind of followed let's do what makes sense and at the time I was treating patients with you know we would do things like steroid injections well steroids were developed forty years ago and haven't changed much since that doesn't mean they're not effective but I felt there had to be at least a different way of looking at this. And instead of working to block the body's response to disease or pathology, maybe there's a way we could work with it. Mm -hmm. And I, Dr. Stedman was kind enough to introduce me to some colleagues of his in Europe uh, where I had a chance to go uh, to Europe and observe some things they were doing that uh, involved totally different mechanisms, but they were trying to support the body's ability to heal instead of, uh, of blocking it or preventing it from inflammation, anti-inflammatories, things like this. And I knew coming back that we couldn't use what they used because they weren't licensed products in the United States. So we had to figure out a way to uh, conceptualize that, that uh, treatment opportunity. Let's work with the body, uh, but create something that was allowed in the United States. And I certainly wasn't alone. There were many, many colleagues who also were working on similar things at the time. And uh, there was uh, some research coming out and animal models, and, and I wasn't alone by any means, uh, and that helped promote the progression. So we, we found this thing called PRP, which is where we take blood, and we basically took blood and concentrated the platelets, which are our growth factors, and let's put it for sports injuries into an area that uh, might make an athlete heal faster so they can get back to sports faster. Well, for a pro athlete, that can be worth millions of dollars. Do you remember... Right? what it felt like the first time you did it? I'm trying to remember. The first time I did it was on me. It might have been. <laughs> no, I... Because I, uh, you, you, you were an athlete, too, and you had Well, we had, we had to do a lot of homework. There was a lot of homework before we started doing this. Um, okay. We you know, we, we wanted to make sure we, were, we weren't we were going off the wrong path here. Mm -hmm. Back in the early days, no one knew much about this. It was a leap of faith. Um, it made a lot of sense. But I think the biggest thing that um, allowed me to at least start to do it was I didn't see a lot of risk, mm -hmm. right? I couldn't see much potential to cause more problems than we were going to solve. Mm -hmm. So we started working with it, and we kept it to very simple, uh, low-risk types of applications, and we were seeing some positive results. Was, what was the time frame between the application and you could see results? It's different. Mm -hmm. You know, in a steroidal situation, for example, you do a steroid shot and within three to five days, someone's feeling better. Uh, with this, it took a little paradigm shift in the thought process. It's weeks mm -hmm. uh, till we see effect. And think about it, if you injure something, if you sprain an ankle, it's six weeks till that feels better. We were mimicking those same healing pathways. Mm -hmm. So the timing was the same, right? We were just... But your expectation uh, was different from the steroids. Correct. And we had to counsel differently. So when we were counseling a patient in terms of what to expect, it wasn't you're going to feel better in three days. We've got to stay with this thing for a while. And when we talk about bone marrow concentrate and, and cellular therapeutics or stem cell-based medicines, it's even longer. It's months until mm -hmm. we can see effect in some cases. So it's not only a financial investment for a patient, it's a time mm -hmm. investment as well. And for an athlete or uh, it's a professional athlete that – Time is money for them. They use their bodies to make a living, so we have to be sensitive to that in our decision-making. You know, and, you know, you think about, so you've arrived at Stedman. You've been to Europe. You're starting to, to look at this application of this technique. Somewhere along the line, there was this thought that there's a business in here. What was that like? 
That was a necessity. It, it, again, to get back to a point we talked about earlier, I started like everyone else using, you know, tabletop devices that were very simple and uh, would would process a sample, and I didn't know what was in it. I just couldn't, I just didn't feel comfortable with it. I, I, we had to be able to do it better. We had to be able to do it better. So we started digging and looking as to how could I at least know what's in it? Mm-hmm. As a, the very first, before uh, thoughts of a company or before thoughts of a field, before thoughts of anything, I had this little tool that seemed cool and it seemed to make a lot of sense and we were seeing some improvement in patients. I just want to know what's in it. How, we, how do we do anything with it if we don't know what's in it? So it started as that. So we looked at technology to measure what was in it. And we, we, there was no guidance. We had to just try different things. We started out in the early days looking through a microscope, counting with a, uh, a manual counter, which at the end of the day, you can imagine the headache <laughs> that you had, right? And my first, Brent, uh, Brent Robinson, my first uh, technologist, who's he's now a plastic surgeon, uh, poor Brent would look at this thing for hours on end, and, and uh, he, was, he was a fantastic guy. But... Um, we started with that, and it just evolved and evolved and evolved and evolved. And we're several generations into technology now to analyze what's in there, and we can do it in 30 seconds and get an incredibly sophisticated analysis of every cell, every cell population, the number of cells, the concentrations, an incredible breakdown. That's just the tip of the iceberg. Bomb. Now we're digging into the subcellular layer, what proteins are involved and, and what other biologically active substances are involved in addition to the cells. So there's... You know, kind of gray ledge 1.0, gray ledge 2.0, gray ledge 3.0 yet to come, and that will take time. But the first step was let's just know what's in it, if for no other reason than to make sure our patient was safe. So gray ledge started out as as an, uh, an answer to a potential question, and then so you started answering the question of what's in it and started developing the data from what's in it. And then there was the thought for you within the practice, all right, I'm going to launch gray ledge or at least start gray ledge. How did how was that discussion with the practice and your ability to continue to practice medicine as a partner? Well, I, you know, I looked at Dr. Stedman for the early guidance, um, and uh, Dr. Stedman, I back when he was still practicing, I used to joke with him. He was really a first regenerative medicine doctor. So Dr. Stedman developed a technique called microfracture where we use a surgical instrument to pick into an arthritic area to cause it to bleed from the marrow. Well, what was in that blood? Stem cells. Mm-hmm. So he didn't. They didn't know it at the time, uh, but he was he was the precursor to all of this stuff that exists today. And um, he used to laugh when I would tell him that. Um, but I went to him and said, "Hey, hey, we've got this idea." He was supportive. He he was internationally known, and he treated patients from all over the world. He lectured all over the world, so he knew what was going on all over the world. And when we, when I spoke to him and, and looked for counsel about doing it first as part of the Stedman Clinic as a provider there and a partner, uh, and then morphing it into a, an actual entity that initially was just designed to provide products for the Stedman Clinic and the hospital of Valley Medical Center, um, he he saw the potential value. Uh, he his expectations are that we would do it ethically, and he challenged us uh, to be such. Um, and he was really the one who kind of supported, hey, let's give it a go and see where it goes as long as you do it right and do it right the first time. And so you, you've got it set up, and there's a point where you decide to establish the lab. And as I understand it, you established it there at the Vail Valley Medical Center. Mm-hmm. So you've got your lab. 
And it wasn't alone. We, look, we use a lot of consultants for that, Bob. I, I didn't just magically come up with this. You didn't I get was, a petri dish in a I was going and looking for any help I could get. So we were using a lot of consultants who had expertise in the laboratory industry, in the quality industry, in uh, other areas. I had um, PhD uh, colleagues from Colorado State, uh, John Kissaday, who's a researcher at uh, CSU, was kind enough to help set up those very initial protocols on how do we do this accurately and safely. And, and I have them to thank really for setting up that original platform. You know, we, we were talking before and uh, I think we've covered the emphasis on compliance and FDA and approval and lab policies and procedures and SOPs and so on to take in and make sure that you were coloring within the lines and also to be, I think, ethical and, and understand somewhere in that process as Grayledge was starting to to get a little bit of, of momentum, uh, you went and picked up an MBA at Daniel's School of Business at University of Denver. Yeah. What was the thought process behind that commitment to time? Terror. <laughs> I started a company and I didn't know how to run it. That, that was that was the, the you know I, I had no training, and you can make the argument that you know a fair amount of business is intuitive, and I believe that's true, but there's a language involved in business that I had no exposure to. So the, you know, it's, it's, it's fascinating. People who are successful in business, you know, there's kind of two tracks. You can, you can learn as you go and kind of through grit figure it out. And I have a tremendous respect for those people. I was used to learning. I was used to going to school and learning how to do something. That's what I knew. And that's not, that's not better nor worse. It's just what I knew. Either way, you're paying tuition. Well, yeah, and a lot of it. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. That's the model I knew. And the fastest way I knew to learn that language was to go back to school. Well, I was full-time practice. I was managing, a very, it was a very early phase company at that point. Um, and I had to drive to Denver every weekend for two years uh, to uh, to get my executive MBA. And and uh, it was, for me, it was a great experience. And Daniel's is a, is a terrific place with with a lot of great resources and, and uh, met a lot of great people. Uh, one of my uh, close friends and colleagues actually consults with Greylich Technologies from my, my school, my class, uh, and he's a, a, an incredibly uh, talented guy. Um, it was just an investment in me uh, that I felt was, uh, was worth the time and money. You know, we, we talked a bit, and, you know, we're now, I think, five years or so away from when you got your degree. And looking back on it, you mentioned the, the key takeaway or benefit that you had from getting your MBA? Yeah, it was, it was learning the language of business. Um, you know, I think as a, uh, you know, as a startup CEO, you should be, you know, chief officer of everything, you know, you got to do everything. And to do that, you had to understand a little bit about a lot. And I think coming out of an executive MBA program, that's what you get. Um, you know, people in our class had more accounting backgrounds or more marketing backgrounds or sales backgrounds or whatever. I was, I was the odd duck. I was a doc. Uh, interestingly enough, they've had a lot of docs go through the program. But for me, it was about learning uh, to be able to communicate with those people that were going to be helping me run this organization and understand what my responsibilities as a CEO were and uh, to be able to communicate effectively to, to help move the business forward. So I just needed to know enough and then use their expertise to help, you know, fill in the gaps where I didn't know things. You know, for some of the folks who go, how in the world, you know, did you go get early investors or how did you fund this whole operation? 
it's been self-funded from day one and continues to be so. You know, that's that's a conscious, obviously a conscious decision. You know, digging into that conscious decision to fund it yourself, what do you think the key reasons that you did that were? I don't think anyone wanted to invest early on. <laughs> well, except me. <laughs> well, that's... Wait, wh- there's probably truth to that. Um, this was a this was a, a gamble. Uh, we didn't know if this was so. In med tech, it's kind of interesting. There's a, there's a business curve. So sexy med tech comes out, and there's this huge upswing in interest in utilization, right? And then usually what happens is we prove that it doesn't work, and then it dies. It falls off a cliff. And you know that's the track we were on. I was in Wall Street Journal and this and that and the other things, and it's just because we were doing something something that other people weren't, and it was interesting. So biologic, uh, regenerative medicine, biologic therapies were on that upswing. And then they started to plateau as we started researching them. But what happened was fascinating. Instead of dying, they came back to earth a little bit. And now they leveled off. And now they're starting to grow again. So it's a sustainability curve now, right? And when we didn't drop off the cliff, uh, I knew maybe we had something. And that uh, this was real and was worth continuing to put a lot of effort, money, and resources into developing. Because if it didn't do that, we would have abandoned this project a long time ago. So was there a moment along this path? So you're running your practice and you're doing what you're doing and you're looking at the ongoing expense and going like, you know, I don't think I want to do this anymore. What was that? discussion in your mind like when you said no i'll keep it up yes weekly <laughs> it's ongoing hey, it's going on right now bob <laughs> no um you know i we were talking earlier i, I read a great op-ed recently about uh, an entrepreneurship which i'm fascinated by and fascinated by entrepreneurs and it said uh, startups are messy right i believe that's so true it's so so true it's so tough you know, you got to be prepared to walk in and on that day get slugged in the face with something you had no idea was coming. And you got to worry, especially when you're self-funding, we're going to make payroll. We're going to be able to pay those bills. We're going to be able to get through this month, um, especially when you enter a growth phase. If we had kept Grayledge small, it was, it was profitable three months into the business. Uh, we had no debt. Uh, we had no investors. And it was doing great. If I had kept it small, uh, you know, it would have done fine. But we saw an opportunity to help and we saw an opportunity in a field that I didn't like all the directions it was going and an opportunity to be impactful and disruptive on some level uh, within uh, an industry to help guide it in what we thought was a good direction, a healthy direction and a direction that um, was in line with our responsibility as scientists and as clinicians and as business people as well to make sure everybody's okay, make sure they're safe. Uh, yeah, we want everyone to live forever with stem cells, right? But that's not where we are. It's just not. Uh, this is reality. There are some things we can do. There are patients we can help, and there are some that we can't. You know, it, it seems like to me with the focus, for lack of a better term, for the focus on organic, I mean, what's a better application than using what you already have to take and help yourself? Well, that's true. However, um, our primary concern and competition is an off-the-shelf type of product, right? That's not yours. Now, those are subject to drug development pathways, so they're going to take a long time, but there's many, many in development. But that's a different economic model. Correct. You know, that's where the company has a vested interest in selling you a particular solution. Right. And our, our comfort is that 
you know, the immense expenses that are going to be needed to develop those models are going to ultimately lead to a price point that can't possibly compete with the price point that we can make. And the other thing that is uh, there is no comparative data. So you can go to another country, for example, and you can get your cells expanded into more cells, or you can get embryonic stem cells, or you can get another adult bank stem cells. But no one has actually looked comparatively at yours versus someone else's or genetically engineered cells, for example, all kinds of amazing science and things that are in various uh, stages of development. So is the long-term play here, we're gonna use yours, your body knows yours, and we're gonna make those work? Or is it something like a combination therapy where if you're 75, well, your stem cells may not be quite so good, what can we do to augment them to make them better? Mm-hmm. As opposed to using a baby cells or an embryonic cells. I shouldn't say baby cells. We can't do that legally. But we can use amniotic cells or mm-hmm. placental drive cells, for example. Um, imma- uh, less mature cells that are, quote, healthier. That's a quote because we don't know that for sure. And there are potential problems with those models, and that's why they're in FDA development pathways. Well, you know, I was thinking as I was looking through some of the data before we got together, and, you know, and the assumption is if you have a certain concentration level that you apply, well, then if the concentration is twice as good, then it must be twice as effective, and that may or may not even be true. Well, how would you know that, Bob, if you didn't measure? You wouldn't know. Correct. And that was the premise behind why we started the company. You know, my take on all that is, you know, when you get that moment, and you go, I really do need to know. You know, I feel responsible to know. That must have been an incredible time frame or, or mental shift for you in the business. You know, I, it was an opportunity. Mm-hmm. And that's all it was. Um, I knew there was a, a lot of work that would go into even just being able to measure because no one had ever done it on that scale. We had the ability. But I'll give you an example. So the technology we had to measure the cells was designed to measure normal concentration. So we do a little blood test on you and we run, we were concentrating at 10 times that. How did we even know that the technology would be able to measure? So I found a research paper that a PhD out of Wake Forest had written on one hemoanalyzer that was able to count platelets up to 2 million platelets per microliter, which was a really, really, really high number, right? And that's the machine we used, the very first one. We've since changed. Yeah, that was a hemoanalytics discussion. That's right. So... Even something as simple as finding a machine that could measure the levels that we were concentrating to was a challenge at first because no one had ever really done it. So we had to figure it out. And the challenge was it's on you to figure it out and go make, make it work. Well, shifting gears, in 2015, you did a patent. The patent is 9164079. What was the thought process and objectives behind your patent? You know, we wanted to develop an IP platform for the company, as any company wants to do. Um, but I was financially limited because I was funding it, and patents are expensive. So we really had two options at that time after meeting with our patent council. We could try to go and secure intellectual property on the processes that we use in the lab to make our products. Or we could have some foresight to say, well, eventually we might be able to develop a device that can do this instead of having a big giant laboratory, Um, even though that device didn't exist. So I couldn't afford to do both at the time and made a conscious decision thinking at the time, and it was part guess, that maybe the long-term player is going to be a device play, not a lab play, which involves human capital management and inventory management and space and rent and things like that. So we we decided to go that route. 
also because our competitors were all device-based. So if I develop Grayledge and a competitor creates a device that can do what we do, well, I've got a problem, don't I? So it was part protective, I guess. Uh, we wanted some IP around a device, uh, hoping that we would, um, you know, maybe inhibit our competitors from going that direction. I don't know. Or we take that on. And this morphs from a, a laboratory-based operation into a device-based operation, and that's a pivot that, can, that may naturally occur in the future. It would certainly be able to do this out of a box that sits on this table as opposed to a lab that fits in this room. Uh, but that, that technology does not exist. We've gotten a lot of interest from outside uh, industry in maybe developing that product, but so far there's no movement on it. So not much reaction currently to that in the marketplace? Well, some. Some? Uh, I think it's, a, it's, it's an issue of uh, you need the right uh, interest um, with someone who can really see that through. That's a lot of technology to put in a box a lot of technology, and it's going to require uh, a partner with a lot of resources and a lot of scientific know-how to be able to engineer a very sophisticated instrument that has to have a price point that's comparable to ours. So if you spend $500 million developing this machine and your margin is a few hundred dollars on a case, how many prior to make your money back? You're going to need an enormous scale. Now, if Greyledge had scaled to, you know, 6,000 centers all over the world, uh, it makes a lot more sense, but we're only just starting. You know, kind of taking a different tack, you know, for the practices, medical practices out there that are currently doing the PRP type regimens and so on that haven't adopted your particular platform, what's the, perhaps a compare contrast between what you do and what maybe they do with your technology? Well, we know what's in it, number one, first and foremost. At the end of, uh, before we implant that product into a patient, we know what's in it. Um, if, God forbid, we ever had a bad outcome, a serious adverse event, something that we have to report, um, at the very least, we knew that what we put into that patient was within the standard of care and safety that we know from science. Okay, so there's a liability piece here. We want a gray ledge to build that liability protection into our users and our providers. You're safe as far as we know, as to, to the limits of science, you're safe. Uh, and if, God forbid, there is a problem, at least we knew we were within a standard, a standard. Now, we're setting that standard, but we were within a standard. And so, you know, you look at the, the folks out there that aren't doing this. They could have an adverse event and have no idea whether they were up, down, left, or right. Well, you could have an adverse event, but yeah, I, we don't want to be litigious, but let's say a doctor's on a stand after an adverse event and uh, counsel says, Dr. Carley, uh, before you implanted that product, did you have any idea what was in it? And your patient had a bad outcome. I would have to say no. We wanted to fix that. I wanted to be able to say, you know, I did know exactly what was in it. And based on what we know from scientific and medical research, it was within the standard. And that's some level, not perfect protection, but some level of protection, not only to the doctor, but to the patient as well, because we know what we're putting in them. In, in progressing further down the path, in 2016, you started to staff up a bit, started bringing on some key personnel. The thought process when you made the decision to start bringing on additional folks, what was that thought process like? I ran out of know-how. <laughs> you know, when we started thinking about scaling Grayledge, um, I wanted to find um, uh, people that I could surround myself with 
who, uh, who would add value, uh, add structure, add layers, add uh, some substance to the organization. So it wasn't just about me, of course. It was, uh, it was about the company and it was about the product that we could improve moving forward because we had to put a whole lot of value into a pretty small price point. And, and I needed help doing that. So we went to PhD level uh, folks. Ted Sand is, uh, is one of my uh, lead PhDs and, and he was a cell therapist for 25 years. So he brought an incredible wealth of experience um, to make gray light stronger, uh, make our scientific foundation stronger, compensate for my limitations for sure. Uh, and then we look to continue to do that as we grow and build. We still outsource quite a bit um, but as we uh, uh, get through kind of this growth phase and start to cash flow more effectively, we're going to roll that back into the company to, to build the infrastructure from outsource to in-source. You know, coincident with that time frame, you also did a website relaunch. What was your thoughts or impressions behind that? Well, twofold. One, we were more knowledgeable about the language that met uh, federal uh, compliance regulations. So we had to make some changes there. Um, uh, and two, we, we wanted Greylist to grow up, right? And one of the things, at least if you believe that perception is reality, that we wanted to do is to have a, uh, a solid web page uh, that represented what we did and would potentially be an attractant to a doc out there or a practice out there or a hospital system out there that said, that had the same concerns I did. You know, we've been doing the PRP and we've been doing these, these cell therapy cases and we don't know what's in them. Well, you know, now there's, there's at least a potential solution out there that's worth investigating. So we wanted a platform that would um, describe our company and what we do differently and the value and such uh, as a starting point to at least maybe initiate a discussion or something we could direct people towards to learn. It was directed more to docs, not directly to patient consumers. Uh, docs are our clients, so we geared it more towards the, the clinician. Um, but in the future, we hope to build layers of, of whether it's web or social media presence that, uh, that provide educational resources for patients as well. Even though we can't practice medicine, that doesn't mean we can't provide resources to patients. Patients don't know where to go. It's, you Google something and 8 million websites come up and it's really, really hard to weed through that process. And there are a lot of other colleagues in the field who are working on similar, uh, similar things, but... Uh, we want to create ultimately a place or a, a resource where patients can go, not necessarily just for Greyledge's sake, but uh, to have some counsel uh, in terms of an ability to learn, what is this? Is it something I might want to investigate and where should I go to do it? And that's, that's still very much a work in progress. So looking forward, so we've, we've kind of talked about the genesis and the, the journey to this point, you know, in, in, in scaling now, which is an objective, I think, that we talked about. How do you see scaling in this operation from this point? It was tricky. You know, the early adopter accounts were strategic. Um, you know, we could have just blown this out and gone to talk to hundreds of practices and just see who would take us on to kind of get that early growth. We, we didn't do that. We went to uh, practices that we felt were aligned with our values. Let's do this right, which was a little tougher, a little bit more cumbersome, um, not necessarily more expensive, but involved more steps and phases. Um, and, and not all of them were 
were open at first. Uh, eventually, you know, they've come around and, and we're now starting to see a little, little faster adoption as the field matures, but also we get better. We had to figure out how to sell this. They didn't know how to sell this at first, right? We had to figure it out. You mean they didn't have a, a great sales course in, in, when you were in med school? Well, I'm still learning how to sell. And quite <laughs> frankly, we're spending a lot of time and effort on, on doing that um, because it, we are a business and we have a product to sell. It's a service model, but it's still something we have to sell. And so we had to learn how to do that. And we didn't need a sales force in the traditional sense of the term. We weren't selling a widget. We weren't selling a product. We were selling a service. And quite frankly, the practices that were interested wanted to talk to me. So I had to take that on, and I had to be on the road, and I had to be meeting and shaking hands. And, um, and it was interesting. On average, it takes me about six to eight touch points, visits, to a practice before they really start to consider working with Greyledge. So it's a lot of time, a lot of effort, a lot of follow-up. It's a lot of persistence. Um, but I think if you believe in, in what you're doing, if you believe in your product, uh, then uh, so, so some, some very powerful people in the industry that are sales experts say, if you really believe in your product, it's your obligation to sell it to that client. And you're not walking out of that room until you make that sale because you believe in it that much. Well, we're dealing with a little different client so we had to morph kind of our message to them a little bit uh, and how we bring them along and how we uh, drive home what we represent and why they should use us over something else. And that you, took time. I was, you know, as you were talking, I was thinking, so the, the average client that you come into and talk, there's a series of, of objections or reservations that they may have. What are the, the chief either misconceptions or concerns that a potential new client might have? Well, the, the knee-jerk one is there's not enough data. But there's a great opportunity for Greyledge. Objections are opportunities, right? I didn't come up with that. I didn't come up with that. I, uh, um, actually, Grant Cardone came up with that. But um, that was an opportunity for Greyledge because I could agree with the client. Always agree with your client, right? You're right. There's not enough data. But you know what? We've got the vehicle to create the data that's going to even matter. So that's why you should work with us. Otherwise, you don't know what's in that product, and how are you going to prove that it works? So you want to help, right? You don't believe there's enough data? Well, let's, let's partner up on this, and let's try to solve that problem. And we've got the vehicle to do it. You know, it, I, I'm thinking about the six or eight visits to close, and that, that's not six or eight weeks. That's a fair stretch of time. It was a lot. It was a lot, and doctors appropriately are skeptical. Depending on what part of the country you go, this is still snake oil, right? Um, now that's changing. That cu culture shifts always take time, as you know, Bob. Um, and it's our job to help influence and make that culture shift happen uh, with a great product at the end of the day. Um, but there's still a great deal of skepticism. It's changing. And the patient drive is, is partly um, responsible for that. Now what we're hearing when we meet with practices is, you know, I've had 10 patients this week that asked me if I was going to give them stem cells. Interestingly enough, on the way to come see you today, I was talking to a friend of mine and he said his wife was asking about it. That's right. So what practices are finding out is, oh, geez, if we don't come up with a solution to answer this question, they're going to go somewhere else. So from a business perspective, that's certainly good for us. But we still want to create a platform um, you know, I, I harp on my employees. 
do it right the first time. It's going to save us an immense amount of time, money, and headache later if we do it right the first time. That's going to slow down our progression. Other companies have progressed a little more quickly than us. Not because they did anything wrong, they just did things differently. We took our time, maybe too much time, uh, but we wanted to make sure we did it right the first time uh, because this was a dynamic uh, industry landscape. It was changing. And that's also why we created the lab as opposed to a device. So if the field totally pivots and we discover something scientifically that we have to change what we do, in a lab model, you change an operating procedure. In a device model, you've got to completely re-engineer a device, and that takes an immense amount of time and effort. This model is designed to grow with a field that's dynamic. And the only way to do that was to create a more cumbersome model that we could uh, we could change it and also allow to be dynamic. So as we learn in Grayledge how to do things better, we can change that. But if the field itself changes, we can modify accordingly and adapt and continue to grow with the field. You know, in, in thinking about one of the comments that we, we were talking about beforehand, and the early adopters are many of the folks in the athletic community, professionals, athletes. What's the typical reaction in the athletic community to this um, new technology? Well, that's a tough question. I think you should ask an athlete that uh, because their perspective certainly um, is different. But having worked with a lot of them, you know, I think athletes use their bodies to make a living. So as a general rule, athletes are going to seek out cutting-edge technologies uh, that are going to help them in the face of an injury or something which interrupts their ability to make money or may end their career or something of that nature. And our clinic uh, is known for, you know, trying to help with that very problem. Uh, so it's not a huge surprise to see something like this develop in that environment. But at the end of the day, how's that different from a plumber who hurts his shoulder? Because he makes a living, you know, using his body also. So while, you know, athletes are a unique model of uh, the uh, limits of human performance, and trying to help them, you know, the difference between Olympic gold medal is 0.000 something seconds, right? That's an incredible, um, uh, incredible uh, small uh, delta between two different athletes. But the applications are really, at the end of the day, aren't different from you or I, as it is from a pro athlete. The timing can vary. For example, the decisions we make with an athlete who's in season may be very different from an athlete who's off season or um, an athlete who, you know, has an important game in a week, right? Um, so we have to alter our thought process a little bit to, uh, you know, to work with that athlete as long as they're kept safe. And, you know, athletes are in the business of athletics and, and that's a tough business. So there's a lot of pressure on them to perform, obviously, and to be present with a lot of money on the table. Um, that doesn't mean they shouldn't get good care. And it doesn't mean they shouldn't be exposed to good decision-making. And I don't counsel a pro athlete any differently than I would any other patient with the exception of timing and how that factors into their particular decision. You know, in, in thinking about the potential customer or client for Grayledge, what would be the the ideal profile of that potential client, what type of practice would be most likely to adopt this technology? Well, I, th I think one that's committed to providing uh, a lot of value and safety to their patients, 
right? In my opinion, and this is very much my opinion, not knowing what's in biologics is not acceptable. A lot of people feel differently. And you could argue that the safety profile, despite not knowing what's in it, is still good. So we're not hurting anybody. In my opinion, it wasn't good enough. So I want a practice or a clinician or a hospital system or a hospital network or an academic institution to feel the way I do that we should be able to do better than that. And also moving forward, work with Grayledge to improve on what we've got now, right? And make that better longitudinally and in the future. That's our next phase. We're not, we can't stop here. We're gonna get overtaken if we stop here. So we have to constantly be reinventing ourselves and what we do based on what we know and what we develop. That's not just an internal Grayledge uh, opportunity. That's an opportunity to work with really terrific people in our field who are ethical uh, and are willing to take on the responsibility and the effort necessary to move a brand new field forward. You know, and, and the evolution of the process is no different than any other technology company. You know, as they develop, you know, 1.0 and 1.01 and 1.02, you know, in, in thinking about a potential client that's sitting out there and going, oh, I, I, I'm in, I love what you said, I want to get involved. What's the process that that potential client would follow to adopt your technology? Well, it really starts just with coming to the table and, and looking at the opportunity and seeing if, if we do have common values and if Greylidge is a good fit. That's a, you know, that's a, a discussion we've had to kind of develop over time. Uh, but there's, from a business perspective, there's really two things to factor in. You know, we go to some practices who are doing a lot of this work. So it's really just bringing Greyledge in and then, and then moving forward. Other practices are interested but not doing much. So does Greyledge make an investment in that practice knowing that they're not cash flowing currently? Uh, thinking that they would be a good partner moving forward, deliver a great care model, and also maybe uh, help to develop uh, ideas or uh, ways of doing things, uh, uh, especially on the clinical end, which we can't do, right? So developing best practices for use of these biologics. How do you use it in a knee arthroscopy or how do you inject it into a shoulder best? Grayledge can't do that. So we need our clinical partners to help, one of whom is me, right, in my practice. So that's a nice thing. I, be, I get to work closely with Grayledge in that capacity. So the ideal client is one who is willing to take on the responsibility to do this right, not simply for profits. That's the wrong way to do things. That's obvious. Um, but provide not only the best clinical product today to our patients, uh, but also be committed to improving what we do longitudinally. Um, when we look at research within Grayledge uh, or within our research partners, we try to be translational, meaning we try to do research or conduct research that has uh, applications in the next one or two or three years, not 20 years. Because my patients who are sitting in front of me don't wanna wait 20 years, they want help now. So while having the foresight to think of models that will be applicable, maybe not even in our lifetime, but another generation to follow is fantastic, it doesn't really help Grayledge nor my patients that I'm serving today. So we've tried to keep our research focused on applications that have impact on our decision-making in the very near future that our patients or supporters or people who are donating to research or, or other clinics who are engaging Grayledge to work with us um, can help people now, today, because this is here now and it's here today. 
So we've got to do the best we can with it. For the folks that would adopt the technology, if they adopt it and say, yes, we're going to go with it, and you guys agree they're a good fit, what's the typical time frame between yes and being operational? A lot of it is, is physical constraints. Uh, we, need a, we need space, right? We have to create a lab. And in most practices, uh, space is at a premium. So sometimes a practice have to, has to actually build out a space for us, and that'll slow things down. Other times we can convert some space uh, into what we need. We have to be a little careful because uh, the way we have to set up a lab has to meet standards in and of itself, just the way the lab is set up for safety reasons and sterility and, 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 and things of that nature. So is space available? Um, is you know, is the, the business there, are they doing this kind of work? And, you know, if, if a, a, a practice of 36 orthopedic surgeons did five PRP cases last year, well, that's going to take some time. It's going to be education involved, right? We've got to develop educational pathways for them to learn and get up to speed, get to conference. Grayledge supports some of those educational initiatives, but not all. Um, and then if we settle the space constraints, then it's really uh, an issue of, of identifying who's going to staff the lab, whether that's a Grayledge technician or sometimes will actually independently contract to use staff from that account who we train um, uh, to operate as technicians to serve the laboratory and, and operate the laboratory. This is a turnkey model, so we handle everything else. Uh, then it's getting equipment, uh, getting inventory, uh, and then working with the clinicians as to how we're going to roll this out. And I'll give you an example as to why that's important. A really busy orthopedic surgeon may have to see 35 or 40 patients in a day. And if a, a bone marrow concentrate injection into a knee takes an hour and a half, and we're tying up a room for an hour and a half when they have 35 more patients to see, that's a huge problem in patient flow and patient management. So we have to work with that group to think about how we're going to roll this out to make it efficient and cost-effective for them to do so. You know, th there's going to be a certain quantity of listeners that are not physicians but they may have some particular issue and they say, you know, we like what you said. We like the idea of knowing. And so how would they find uh, practitioners that are uh, adopters of your technology? Yes, yeah, uh, very much a work in progress and an initiative moving forward. Uh, the hope with Grayledge growing and develop, developing strategic uh, partnerships is to create a network where we can have that resource to patients. If you like what Grayledge is doing, you know, here's a network of Grayledge providers. But again, we got to be careful because we're regulated. Uh, we can't endorse a practice. And that's also not fair to other mm -hmm. uh, network partners to endorse a practice. You know, so we've, we've got to be fair and we've got to be uh, compliant in that respect. But the thought would be to develop a network of regional uh, users of Grayledge where patients could go as a resource and hopefully continue to grow so there's something uh, that's quality control, whether it's Grayledge or other that's close by uh, that they can get to, you know, in a reasonable distance. You know, and, and we're, we're actually heading toward a close. We've been at this for a little while, but we talked before about data collection and you made a conscious decision about data collection and how you were going to take and, and frame that. Touch on that if you would. Yeah, if there's one thing I'm disappointed, it's how long it took us to be able to do that. We've collected data on every single biologic we've produced from day one, and we did a good job there. But we didn't do a great job in creating the platform that we could offer as a service to a provider 
to be able to collect those outcomes in parallel with what we were producing in terms of data. So collect the data on the biologic and collect the data on the outcomes like we talked about earlier, right? We're only now getting to the point where we have an electronic format that's a nonprofit and a free service that we can offer to a clinic that, or a hospital or an institution that we partner with uh, to be able not only to utilize the Grayledge products, but also to track our outcomes, which we believe is an important obligation of the industry, Grayledge, and the provider uh, as a joint venture moving forward to validate what we do. And the, the benefit to the user there is we create a database for the practice whereby they can counsel a patient more effectively. So they can say, Bob, you know, we've treated 327 people with your type of knee problem, and here's the results we're seeing at our center, not in a research paper that was done something else. So it has a lot of value to, uh, to the patient in that they can be educated more effectively and to the provider to be able to counsel accordingly. And also to the provider to be able to, to say, well, we're doing pretty well here. Our outcomes are pretty good. You know, they're not so good here. Let's take a look at that. How can we do better, right? How can we make that better? Do we need to tweak something? Do we need to work with Grayledge? Do we need to come up with a different protocol or approach that might help a subset of patients who aren't doing as well as we would like to do better so that their money is more uh, effectively spent? You know, Dave, we've, we've kind of been from uh, what you do to the genesis of where you are. And so as a parting piece of advice to some of the entrepreneurs out there that'll be listening, what advice might you offer them? You know, I think the things that come to mind first, uh, we talked a bit earlier about, and that is, it's important to know what you don't know. Um, a, a mentor, a very dear friend of mine who has since passed away, but was a very successful businessman once told me, Dave, if I was the smartest guy in the boardroom, I knew we were in big trouble. Take-home message being surround yourself with great people. And as an entrepreneur, when you're having to do a lot of things, you need help, right? So you can outsource that help. You can insource that help. doesn't matter, but make sure you get good people to fill in for your own deficiencies. Know what you don't know. And the second piece is, if you don't know, you better learn quick right? Because it's really expensive to outsource. It's really expensive to use consultants. So the more you can learn and, and tackle, especially early on in the startup where you're having to wear multiple hats, you got to be a quick learner, right? Uh, you have to be willing to learn and know that you don't know a lot and, and adapt and morph. Um, and then it's just grit from there on, right? You got to slug through those days that aren't going well and you celebrate the days that are. Um, you got to be gritty. If you're not gritty, Entrepreneurship is not for you. You know, we, we were talking before we started, and you wanted to give a shout-out to these kind folks that have allowed us to use their facility. That's a, thank you for reminding me. Yes, I would have forgotten. So um, we are at Resilience Code in, uh, in Denver, um, and Resilience Code is hopefully a future partner to Grayledge. We're very, very excited about the opportunity potentially to work with them. It was founded by Dr. Chad Prusmack, who's a neurosurgeon. Uh, and it's headed by uh, Chris Hetherington, who's a former NFL football player who's CEO of the organization. And they're doing some fascinating work in human performance, uh, looking at uh, genetic coding and how we might be able to use sequencing of our DNA to influence decision making on how we train and eat and supplement uh, and make medical decisions. And what we're hoping to do with Resilience Code is add a cell therapy piece where we can study in parallel genetics and how that impacts your cell and how we might be able to make your cell better or more therapeutic based on your DNA. 
So it's an incredibly difficult data project, but an unbelievably exciting kind of futuristic uh, future medicine here today type of concept. But uh, they've done an absolutely incredible job here, and uh, I certainly hope that they're uh, part of the Greyledge family soon. Well, and maybe we'll look out and get them on a podcast in the future as well. I would highly recommend it. Well, I, I sure appreciate you taking time out of your afternoon. And we have Zoe in here that's been supervising both of us, and she's been very kind. Yeah, she's going to be editing this later, Bob. So, oh, oh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh-oh. <laughs> so thanks to Zoe and Dave. Uh, I really appreciate it. My pleasure. We appreciate the work that you do and uh, the opportunity for uh, folks like us to get some exposure. You bet.